You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next 30 minutes, France and the UK hold their first summit in five years. We'll take the temperature of their relationship. Plus... Almost all banks in Europe try to stop all their business relationships with Russia since the invasion in Ukraine and Raiffeisen Bank... <laughs> Uh, from Austria does uh, the opposite. We find out why Austria is still doing business with the aggressor. Also, Andrew Muller will bring us his take on the last seven days' events. We learned that Donald Trump Jr., whose public utterances our lawyers tell us we may describe as animated and energetic, perhaps even spirited if we're feeling lucky, probably needs to do further work on his Willy Wonka impression. All that plus a flick through the international headlines. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. We start in Paris, a place for lovers to meet, with the romantic expectation even more intense if too long a period has been spent apart. Or the political world at least is holding its breath to see if the first Anglo-French summit in five years will see a reigniting of warmth, a spark between London and Paris, or whether something will get in the way. Well, joining us for more is the political journalist and author Terry Stiesny. Hello, Terry. Good to have you on The Briefing. Hello, Emma. So the, the meeting, by all accounts, is just kicking off or, or things are getting underway. Bring us the latest. Well, yes, as you say, you're talking about um, the warmth of the relationship. And there were certainly warm greetings for Rishi Sunak when he arrived at the Elysee in Paris from Emmanuel Macron. And I think it's really significant how much both leaders are saying that this is a new chapter in Anglo-French relations. Emmanuel Macron was saying our destinies are linked, our challenges are shared, talking about the wide range of things they are going to be discussing today. Uh, Rishi Sunak saying we're close neighbours and great friends. And he's given an interview to the French press where he's talking about, you know, France being his great friend and how his personal uh, friendship with Emmanuel Macron is is sort of increasing that they've met and they've also exchanged texts about football. So certainly the mood music around this summit is definitely one of one of warmth and one of trying to work together more closely after the last few years. Well, indeed, because damage was done during the Johnson era, wasn't it? Yes, during the Johnson era and as well um, during the Liz Truss era. I mean, it, Boris Johnson made it clear that he didn't get on with Emmanuel Macron and and it was pretty much uh, reciprocated. And then, of course, there was the moment when um, Liz Truss in her brief prime ministership was asked, did she think of France as a friend or a foe? And she said the jury's still out on that one. And that, of course, was a question that was put to Rishi Sunak today, the first, you know, by, by the Figaro. And they said, uh, is he a, a friend? friend or a foe and he said no a great friend certainly one of the things or indeed the thing that the the press seem to be focusing on is this issue of migration it is a perpetually difficult thorny subject for both france and for the united kingdom the united kingdom government recently setting out plans which is a zero tolerance policy arrive in a small boat on a beach in england and we will put you in a tent detention center and you are on a plane to a third country before you 
your feet can barely touch earth. Um, the French are not uh, approving of this, aren't they? So we already have a, an ostensibly happy, friendly bringing coming together again, already being beset by a problem. Yes. Um, there, although I would say that um, there is more cooperation on this area, again, under the Rishi Sunak government than there has been in the past. So they had already uh, announced a certain a deal to invest more in police and security and their work building on what they've already done. So they want to have this intelligence and security deal to try to stop small boats. And of course, this is going to come at a cost for Britain. We don't know precisely how much that cost is going to be, but there's reports that uh, there are going to be annual payments uh, from Britain to France for more than three years, which would possibly be about £75 million in the first year alone. So possibly looking at an additional £200 million being paid from Britain to France to try to set up uh, more police operations, which will try to prevent people crossing the channel in small boats and coming to Britain. One thing that Rishi Sunak at least has to be aware of is that there are people in his party who see still see France as the adversary, indeed no less as an enemy. Um, how much pressure is Rishi Sunak under, under to respond and feel as if he has to uh, not necessarily obey but heed those calls? Or are we now in an era where, as a technocrat, a man who is happy to try to see a, a, a compromise and a resolution, as we saw with the Windsor framework last week, is that the situation instead? Well, it's interesting. I think you see uh, very different tones according to the audience that the British government are talking to. Um, for instance, in the House of Commons, when Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who is more on the right of the party, was talking about migration. She was talking about you know, patriotism. She was talking about the threats of huge numbers of people potentially coming to Britain. Whereas Rishi Sunak, although he did say that he uh, was prepared to put forward this legislation, which could potentially go against the European Convention on Human Rights and saying that he was up for a fight with lawyers. He did also say this law isn't a silver bullet, that he stressed the importance of international cooperation. And, and particularly, you know, him and uh, Emmanuel Macron, they're, they're both technocrats. They both like doing things in this way through international agreements, through going through the details. So I think, you know, they've got two like-minded people there. Um, and I I think, you know, when he's looking internationally, he does realise that things can't be done by unilateral legislation in Britain alone. And I think we've seen that with, with Northern Ireland as well. You know, the, the, the idea of the previous government was, well, we'll just do our own law and we'll re re disregard international obligations. That is not necessarily the way that Rishi Sunak goes about doing things. And indeed, it's not necessarily the way that Macron sees about, about doing things. His, his approach has been very much a whatever solution is best for France, even if it might irritate the right and annoy the left. But if we look at the two men, both in former investment bankers, both the sons of doctors, both about the same age. It, they clearly also have the same taste in how they appear. I mean, they're, they're, it's quite astonishing when you see them together. It, when you have something like that, and and you think, okay, we are we are entering an era where we have two leaders of of similar uh, sort of standing and and background. Does that slightly change the way that politics is done as well? Because everything has been so adversarial and bombastic for the last 10, 15 years, given the, you know, the arrival of Trump and, and what have you. Um, could we see a, a, an ushering in of a new era in a plain sharp cut suit just getting on with the job? 
Uh, yes, I think, you know, it, obviously it depends how long that era lasts because uh, Rishi Sunak has got an election coming up in a couple of years. But I think, you know, the breadth of issues that they're talking about, it's obviously what you would expect for a summit that hasn't been held for several years. So obviously they're talking about the environment, Ukraine, military cooperation as well. But yes, these are two people who, you know, are, as you say, are, are very similar in, in many respects. They've got a lot in common um, and they work in similar ways. You know, another thing Thing that is similar about the two of them is they both work really hard. I mean, compared with, say, perhaps uh, Boris Johnson, we know that Macron works his uh, aides and people really hard in the Elysee. That he likes to look at the detail. He likes to to get right down into things. And that's very much about what we hear about Rishi Sunak as well. So I think you know when they meet, um, there there is potential for them to to want to work in the same way. Obviously, they've both got domestic audiences that they have to play to, and they have to do the politics. As as well. Um, but it is, you know, a constructive a constructive basis. Terry Stiasny, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is nine minutes past midday. A look at the day's other news headlines now. Here's Paige Reynolds. Thanks, Emma. At least seven were killed and dozens injured in a shooting at a Jehovah's Witness church centre in Hamburg, Germany. Police say the gunman acted alone in Thursday's attack and is also thought to be dead. Xi Jinping has secured an unprecedented third term as China's president. The Chinese leader was officially endorsed earlier today by the country's political elite, making him the longest-serving head of state of communist China since its founding in 1949. And US President Joe Biden will meet European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen today at the White House to discuss potential sanctions against China. The visit comes amid concerns that Beijing is preparing to send weapons to Russia. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Paige. Now, a year into the war in Ukraine, Austria continues to do business with Russia through both its banking and its energy sectors. Last month, Austria's second biggest bank, Raffaizen, reported a record profit of 3.6 billion euros for 2022. 60% of that was thanks to Russia and Belarus. It's also been reported that Raffaizen plans to buy the Vienna-based subsidiary of Russia's largest lender, Sparbank. Well, at the same time, Austria's gas contract with Russia is still up and running and doesn't allow an exit until 2040. Well, all of this has drawn domestic and international criticism, with the United States Sanctions Authority launching an inquiry into the Russian dealings of Raffaizen. Monocle's Alexei Korolyov in Vienna has more. Die Sowjetunion ist der wichtigste und bislang einzige Gaslieferant Österreichs. Hier in Baumgarten wird das sowjetische Gas übernommen. In June 1978, Austria's energy company OMV was celebrating an unusual anniversary. Ten years of gas supplies from the Soviet Union. Already, as this radio report suggested, the Russians had made themselves indispensable to Austria. That original contract had been signed just weeks before Moscow invaded Czechoslovakia in August 1968, and it would be extended again and again over the following decades. It's now set to run until 2040, and Austria says it will honour its commitments despite another Russian invasion. Uh, Austria has spent about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, between 6 and 7 billion uh, euros for Russian natural gas uh, over the past 12 months. Uh, at the same time, Austria has spent about a quarter of the same sum 
for supporting Ukraine, both within the multilateral framework within the EU and also in bilateral aid. Wolfgang Müller is Professor of Russian and Eastern European History at the University of Vienna. What sense does it make economically to support financially an aggressor with 7 billion at the same time trying to mend the damage that has been done and is being done while we are talking uh, by the same aggressor. And so even economically, it doesn't make sense to buy this product in the country uh, where the aggression comes from. You, you know, you put it very clearly, there are numbers, as you say, you know, you can look at the numbers and then, as you say, it doesn't make sense. Why then the Austrian government, uh, the chancellor, why, why don't they see it? Perhaps this has something to do with the various alternatives that have to be found uh, for replacing natural gas from Russia. And uh, certainly by trying to get out of the contract, the Republic of Austria may face uh, some uh, legal consequences. And I think that may explain uh, why the Austrian government has not taken a different decision yet. Uh, however, I think that the pressure is going to increase, perhaps change the position of the Austrian government in that regard. Pressure is also growing on Austria's second biggest bank, Raiffeisen, which has continued to do business with Russia throughout the war in Ukraine, effectively funding the Russian war effort. Nina Tomaselli, an Austrian Green Party MP, has called for a parliamentary inquiry. Most banks, almost all banks in Europe, try to stop all their business relationships with Russia since the invasion in Ukraine. And Raiffeisen Bank uh, from Austria does uh, the opposite. Um, Financial Times recently reported that 40 to 50 percent of all the cash flows worldwide to and from Russia are processed via payment systems of Raiffeisen Bank. And so my concern is that the Russian business of the Raiffeisen Bank um, harms the reputation of Austria and the Austrian economy. The Austrian government insists that it's important to keep channels of communication to Russia open and that Raiffeisen has so far acted responsibly. But Professor Wolfgang Müller at the University of Vienna says it's not Austria's place to act as a negotiator. I do not think that the weight, political weight of uh, Austria uh, today is sufficient uh, to actually change the course of events. If Austria uh, wants to play a role, then it would probably uh, be the role of a host uh, for negotiations, but negotiations are not foreseeable uh, in the near future. So I do not see uh, that Austria has high chances uh, for playing a role as a mediator for Russian-Ukrainian armistice or peace talks. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. My thanks to Alexei for that report in Vienna. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. You asked, we delivered. Welcome to The Concierge, a travel show from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. This week, we take a stroll through one of the most historic cities on Finland's southern coast. 
I set out to explore Porvo and its charming 15th century old town. Soon my tote bag was filled with artisanal chocolates and licorice that Porvo is famous for, as well as some great Finnish design. And walk the renovated boardwalk on Miami's South Beach. It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area as it is for those just passing through. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio. And you're back with the briefing on Monocle 24 now. It wouldn't be Friday here without Monocle's Andrew Muller giving giving us his roundup of the week's news. Here's what we learned. We learned this week that the United States had, presumably while the rest of us were distracted by a pigeon or something, become a union of Soviet socialist republics. We learned this from former, and perhaps who knows next, US President Donald Trump, who appears to believe that those lines in America the Beautiful about amber waves of grain, purple mountains, majesty et al. require some rewriting. No one will even recognize a lawless, open borders, crime-ridden, filthy communist nightmare. And this startling revelation regarding the conquest of the citadel of capitalism by the dictatorship of the proletariat was just one of many things we learned from this year's iteration of the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. CPAC is an event beloved by four very specific classes of people. One, seething yokels. Two, paranoid halfwits. Three, grandstanding yahoos. Four, those whose professional obligations include the weekly assembly of some sort of whimsical news review pithily illustrated with verite audio. As it does save us an awful lot of rummaging around for material, frankly we'd be happy if CPAC just went on more or less permanently. Like one of those tyre fires that combusts so interminably that people come from miles around to enjoy the show, taking care to stay upwind. So among the things we learned from CPAC, other than that, this week's monologue would be a pretty easy morning's work, were the following. We learned that Donald Trump Jr., whose public utterances our lawyers tell us we may describe as animated and energetic, perhaps even spirited if we're feeling lucky, probably needs to do further work on his Willy Wonka impression. Uh, Check under your seats. If there happens to be a gold chocolate bar underneath there, That's a VIP, oh, I'm not joking. That's a VIP ticket to my father's reception tomorrow at CPAC. We also learned, surveying the auditorium, that a significant cohort of Donald Trump Jr.'s legions of fans have adopted a new thing of attending public speeches dressed as empty chairs. Nevertheless, we learned from Don Jr.'s plus one Kimberly Guilfoyle that... Their willing allies in the media are hell-bent on taking their far-left agenda mainstream and, frankly, destroying all of our lives. We're doing our best, certainly. We learned that Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a true story. The left has told us something that should put fear in the heart of every parent, and not just parents, every single person. 
They've said they're coming for our children. We learned that several shirted former intellectual guru of Trumpism, Steve Bannon, hasn't given up on the idea of a presidential pardon. Now remember, we came off of, on 3 November of 2020, four years of peace and prosperity. We learned from Congressman Mark Green that you can overdose from touching money. Every American in our country is at risk for this. Uh, you, you pick up a dollar that's got fentanyl on it and you're dead. You think there's a gag coming about banknotes laced with drugs, possibly tied to a certain other speaker at CPAC, but our lawyer informs us there is not. And we learned that Senator Rick Scott has developed sentience. Everybody in Washington said I'm nuts. I might be. We learned a couple of things about actual or presumable Republican candidates for next year's election. We learned that Mike Pompeo is going the passive-aggressive route. I was talking about the time to elect serious leaders who are thoughtful, who speak about America as the most exceptional nation in the history of civilization. They're not denigrating it. They're not, they're not throwing out whoppers. They're not spending all the time thinking about Twitter. Whoever can he mean, etc. We learned that Nikki Haley may actually have a sense of humor or perhaps just a tendency to self-sabotage. When I launched my campaign, I said every politician over 75 years old should be required to take a mental competency test. And we also learned, which was good, because we'd been wondering whatever did happen to that mighty and impenetrable wall that 76-year-old President Trump was going to build along the southern border. Texas and Arizona said, could we use that wall? We'll finish it right up. And they said no. And they actually took it away and they hid it. They put it in a hiding area, which of course was revealed pretty quickly. All you have to do is send a couple of helicopters up. We learned, yes, that Joe Biden hid it in, and this is key, a hiding area. Although maybe Biden should think about calling the hiding area something less obvious. Just a thought. Happy to help, as always. We learned that there was a limit to CPAC's indulgence of dreary rambling nonsense, and that it was exceeded by Ben Carson, Trump's housing secretary. Though the degree of Carson's awareness of the fact that he is no longer housing secretary is disputable, who ploughed grimly on even after the hinting music started playing. They call students, young staffers, what you need to know about the government so that you don't have to... So we learned that CPAC clearly doesn't have one of these. And we learned that Senator John Kennedy, bless him, remains a heartbreakingly distant second most impressive ever Senator John Kennedy. What else is the truth? The truth is that God is great, beer is good, and, and the United States of America is star-spangled awesome. Anyway, only 360 or so days until the next CPAC, let's have a sound effect evocative of a really big advent calendar being hung up. we learned, as we very often seem to, that it could always be worse. In Georgia, the country in the Caucasus, not Marjorie Taylor Greene's home state, one is a weird backward swamp governed by lunatics, the other is a country in the Caucasus, we're here all week and so forth, we learned that the democratic discourse had degenerated to the point that Parliament had descended into fisticuffs, fade up the authentic audio. 
And we learned that it wasn't just American conservatives or nationalist Georgian MPs who were struggling to make their cases of put-upon victimhood this week. We learned that Russian Foreign Minister and haunted walnut Sergei Lavrov, speaking in New Delhi, was locating few takers for his interpretation of recent events. You know, uh, the war uh, which uh, we are trying to stop and which was launched against us using Ukraine, <laughs> Ukrainian people tough crowd. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And my thanks to Andrew Muller for that. Here with the briefing. Time to devote the final few minutes of today's programme to looking at the newspaper headlines and the hardest hitting news that we can find on this planet. Tom Webb, Deputy Head of Radio, has just come in. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. <laughs> and nice to have you with us. So hard hitting news. We start with, we are in the paper format here, with the Times of my favourite headline of the week. Go for it. Brits too grotty for Lanzarote. That's that's trumping everything else that's happening on this earth. Why, why are we just a seedy bunch, us Brits? So this is quite a fascinating... Fascinating story. Have you have you ever been to the Canary Islands? No, I haven't. Am okay. I missing much? Uh, no, you're not. I've been to Lanzarote. Um, um, it's just west of Morocco, which is it's, fine. It's very Mars-like. The beaches are a bit rocky. Um, this but, sounds good so far. No, but the Germans and the Brits there ruin the experience. Ah. So. Half of all tourists that go to Lanzarote are British. And over the years, they've built up this reputation for being burnt, poolside towel-grabbing, obnoxious drunks. And this is a problem. So what's new? Hang on a minute. We need to go right back here. As if, were we ever, ever thus, apart from the kind of like the Lucy Honeychurch room with a view, D.H. Lawrence kind of holidays from a bygone era? Or are we... We just generally are a bit like that, aren't we? We are like that. But the problem for Lanzarote is we are going there more and more to behave like this. So the solution is that the leader of Lanzarote wants to start appealing to a higher class of traveller. And she wants the higher class, the elite, to come from Germany and not the UK, presumably knowing that the British elite won't ever go there. (laughs) And she's doing this by cranking up the costs while ostracising the cheaper tourists uh, with smear campaigns just like this. So hang on a minute. So she's actually actively discouraging people from going to visit her island? She is, which is causing problems with the locals that like the small businesses because they do bring a lot of money just because there's so many of them. They may not spend a lot. And if I were a well-heeled Berliner, what would make me want to jump on a plane and go to a place which currently is full of drunk, peeling English people? Or so, Brits, sorry. Sorry, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. Didn't, well, didn't include you in there. There's a lot of German culture there, uh, including the Ballermann, which is Euro-trash dance subculture and drinking sangria out of 10-litre buckets um, and dressing like the 80s never ended, apparently. And what, pray, is wrong with that? <laughs> no, but that's why there, there is an appeal for Germans to go there. Uh, and so the Germans will go for that over the Brits. I'm, I'm, I'm now getting a little bit lost as to why the Germans would go for that and not the British. Is that just too up, too high class for British? We need a bigger bucket. It's too Eurocentric, I think. Okay. Um, the, the, in the build, I was looking back through the papers, the, the German paper. Ten years ago, they had a headline called The Vodka Cough, Sunburn and Lingerie Amnesia of Brits Abroad. 
and in Britain, actually, some might. Now, what is a vodka cough? No, I was hoping this? you were going to answer that question. Okay, so I'll look it up. I'm looking it up. Uh, a vodka cough is a thing. So it's a, it is a cough that you get after drinking vodka. And there was a report about, what, 10 years ago now, of uh, people claiming that they have a sore throat and chesty cough down to drinking a brand of Spanish vodka. Um, apparently the makers of this vodka say there's nothing wrong with it and have denied any link to the cough. Um, but it is a it is a cough it is a, a vodka which has been sold in bars and clubs in Magaluf, which is on Mallorca. Yes. Right in thinking, um, and at the time, and this article was three euros a litre. That's a decade ago. Inflation might have pushed it up to four. So let's you know let's let's be careful with our pennies here. Um, but so a vodka cough is a thing. And it is a tool for the Germans to humiliate the Brits. And they did one step further, this paper. They did something wonderful. They sent an undercover reporter to the Brit side of the island and found a forklift driver from Barnsley, which they outed as the king of sun lounger thieves. So, what a swine. The, so the, 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 <laughs> the, the Brits blame the Germans as sun lounger thieves, but actually apparently the Brits are a lot worse. I want to end this yes. like I'm going to end all three stories, is yeah. your opinion. Should... Brits be banned from Lanzarote? Absolutely not. Good. Thank I you. mean, I think they it should can stay. Go there and we can go somewhere Exactly. Else. So to draw inspiration from the Alan Corrin quote, I love Lanzarote because it keeps a riffraff out of Sardinia. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Right, um, right let's... Oh, Sardinia, there's, that's another story. Right, Taipei Times. <laughs> Taipei Times, the headline... Should be dealing with, like, impending military threat from Beijing. No. We are looking at what should be done about Flacco, the Eurasian eagle owl who is set loose in New York. That's a pressing pr- problem. This so, is only the hard stuff here today, isn't it? Yes. The, 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 people may, just, may know Flacco, the owl, at the owl, because the saga started way back in February the 2nd when Central Park Zoo staff has found that Flacco was missing from his enclosure. Um, because vandals had let it out. Now, it's a huge, it's the second biggest owl in the world. It's got a six-foot wingspan, and it's since moved to Central Park, where it's become a bit of a legend. But what's happening today is there is an argument between the people that want the owl to be free and the people that think the owl should be captured and live the rest of its life in captivity. Mm. Now, the argument is it's uh, it's now at risk because of eating rat poison, collisions with vehicles or buildings, or causing harm to other wildlife and native birds, even though it is now successfully hunting the rats of New York and living a quite wonderful life in Central Park. And tourists love him. This article is absolutely beautiful in its description of what is... An, a breathtakingly handsome creature. They're talking about him having pumpkin orange eyes and feathery ear tufts. I mean, he's when you do look at the pictures, he's beautiful, isn't he? He is a beautiful owl, and it's why he's so popular. However, we need to look back to a few years ago at Barry the owl. Right. Now, that's a female barred owl who lived in the park for about a year. You, I love a female called Barry. I so do as well, <laughs> but Barry the owl died after a collision with a park management van because it was poisoned. So Barry, the female owl, impacted with her ability to avoid the van with rat poison. Okay, not so great. Because there is a picture of Flacco with a, a well, a dead rat in his talons, isn't it? It's, it's sort of very nonplus. And yes, just getting on with it. It's doing well. So here's the question at the end of the article: mm. Should Flacco the owl be free? Well, it depends if they can catch him or not. They can't catch him, and they've tried. They have now for almost over a month. 
They have yeah. tried to catch Flacco and they can't. I'll guess him. Haven't you seen Wacky Races and Catch the Pigeon? Always ends up in the right, right, right direction. Uh, finally, do you think, actually, I'll ask you back, do you think Flacco should go back into captivity? Into no. His, into his cage? Do you think he should be born free? Yes, I do. Flacco is, is he, Flacco the owl may die, but the cause that Flacco he'll, he'll is He'll die raising. a free bird. He'll die a free bird. I oh, think it's a wonderful ending. Marvellous. We'll, we'll have to rush this last one and just mm. as well because there's not much substance to this one. No, there it, isn't, actually. <laughs> From Washington Post, <laughs> Berlin to let everyone go topless at public what swimming do you mean pools. There's not much substance to this. I don't. I don't <laughs> do quite a lot more. A lot more substance now that uh, in Berlin um, and everywhere else since the dawn of time, men can go topless in public pools, but women can't. Even in naked, loving Berlin, so women who bared their breasts in Berlin pools were asked to cover them, or to leave, or to be banned from returning. Now, one of these women turned to the Senate's Ombudsperson Office for equal treatment to demand that women like men can swim topless. She won, she's successful, she can now swim topless with men. And fly with the bird, with Flacco the owl as well. This is all about liberty. This is it? all about liberty <laughs> and your opinion on liberties. <laughs> well, I mean, look, if the Berlin, if the female Berliners are, if we're talking sort of like art, art of the Weimar Republic, maybe it's better that that's kept in the art gallery. Uh, but, you know, it's glorious. Quite, I, I just got back from Sam Ritz and what confused me there is I wore trunks into a sauna to a point where a clothes security guard came and escorted me out and I thought he was going to whip them clean off me. But I didn't realise I could have it out in front of women but apparently in some European countries you can that's being bottom half naked right, by the way okay. so the rules in Europe are very very confusing mm. is the point if you're British you stone your sun lounger you drink your vodka but you remain fully clothed Tom Webb so that's the conclusion your opinion would you get them I've out I've got too many things in my head to even think about images um, I don't even want to think about it Tom Webb thank you <laughs> that's all we have time for this edition of The Briefing many thanks to all my guests and to our producer Paige Reynolds our researcher was Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Callum McLean The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time but for now from me Emma Nelson goodbye thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend 